Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. This is episode 119 of the show, and if you're unfamiliar with the podcast, Conquering Columbus is the place to go if you're looking for interviews with some of the most incredible people from around the city who are leading in their fields, whether that be science, business, entrepreneurship, or more. We've got a great episode lined up for you today with Mr. Joel Guth of Griffin Financial. But before we get to that interview, we want to take a brief moment just to thank some of our sponsors here on the show. So I'm going to kick it over to Josh to tell you a little more about our first sponsor, FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state, and you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And our next sponsor is Share. For the rides that you take the most, ride with Share. Share is a new transportation company now driving Columbus. Schedule your ride and Share picks you up at your door with professional drivers and a growing fleet of connected vehicles. Share is now hiring with entry-level management positions available. You can learn more about careers with Share at drivewithshare.com. I'd also like to give a shout out to Molly Ross. Molly Ross is an independent designer who focuses on branding and web design. She wants to connect with you, hear your story, and partner to create something beautiful that will help your business be more successful. If you'd like to check out some of Molly's work or connect with her, you can go to mollyross.com. Finally, if you've ever wondered what it takes to start your own podcast, we're here to help. We're putting together a podcast startup package with our recommendations and some of the key lessons we learned over the past two years of podcasting. You can sign up by heading over to our website, conqueringcolumbus.com. And while you're there, don't forget to give us a like on Facebook and be sure to subscribe and share Conquering Columbus wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we've got Mr. Joel Guth joining us, the CEO and founder at Griffin Financial. Griffin Financial is a financial advising firm with a focus on transparency and trust with their clients. Before founding Griffin, Joel was an executive director at Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, and he started his career at Merrill Lynch. We're really excited to have him here on the show today. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Joel. Well, thank you. Yeah, and how's your day going so far? Pretty good. 
It's always a good day when you get to end with conquering Columbus, right? Absolutely. So what does a typical day look like for you? <sighs> you know, I, I think part of the reason I love what I do is I don't know there's a typical day. Every day is, is, is going to be different based on who we're meeting with, what's going on in the markets, what kind of research we need to do. Um, but, but typically, you know, my days would be some mix of talking to clients, whether it's in person or on the phone, um, doing some sort of market research, and, and some days are a lot more than, than others, and then dealing with my team internally on any of the business issues. And we'll talk more about what you and your team have going on today a little bit later in the episode, but kind of set the foundation. Maybe talk a little bit about um, your path to where you are today, maybe anything about your childhood that kind of sticks out and um, your upbringing, and then go from there. You know, we grew up uh, near Belleville, which is kind of middle of middle of the country, very small town. Uh, moved when I was in high school to a little town called Willard, and uh, there were six of us. Um, so we had a big family, uh, four boys, two girls. A little unique in that only two of us ended up going to college, and both of us kind of got out of the small town because of basketball, which is usually shocking to people when they see that I'm 5'11", and basketball is kind of an odd thing to have, to, to have have helped me get to school but um, you know pretty typical childhood grew up kind of lower middle class I would say Uh, dad was a teacher for a number of years and then went into sales uh, when I was in high school and um, so that was that was about it you know kind of a traditional small town midwestern upbringing so you mentioned that dad kind of went into sales pivoted from a teacher Uh, did that have any effect on you like seeing your dad go from a teacher to try and go maybe into a role that's more business oriented yeah you know in hindsight i think it did he he um a couple things my my dad was always good at whatever he did he was obsessed with with being good so if he played racquetball he had to try everything to be the best um he was a band director in indiana and for years his band which which most people don't realize but they actually have a state competition for bands and his band fairly consistently won it so I think seeing him take the risk really did develop a little more of, a, of an aggressive risk-taking mentality with, with me. And then he worked hard. I mean, he, he, you know, that was the one thing he would always say is that no matter what, you can always work hard. You can't be bigger, can't be faster, may not be smarter, but you can always outwork people. And so I think those two things really helped me both with my athletic career and then as I went into business. So, yeah, I think it did. And how does the basketball thing play out? When you graduate high school, are you getting scholarship offers at that point? Or? Yeah, so I, hard, hard to believe now, but, but when I graduated, I was one of the top 100 players in the country. So had a lot of uh, Division One schools that I talked to, decided to go um, to a smaller school, went to Toledo, because I knew I could play right out of uh, my freshman year. Had a good freshman year, uh, tore my knee up at the end of my freshman year. So I had to sit out and then again heard it as a sophomore and that was kind of what led me to realize that you know 5'11 average athletes with bad knees don't make money playing basketball so that's what got me to go to Cornell so I, I they had recruited me out of high school but you know at that time I was delusional and thought I had a chance to someday make money playing basketball so I didn't want to go but once I got hurt then I realized I needed to use my brain to make a living and and you know to have an option to go to a school like Cornell was was phenomenal but, but basketball was just such a key driver that kind of got me and my oldest brother, you know, out of that small town environment where most of our classmates, you know, have stayed there. 
So despite that injury, those doors were still open for you at Cornell? Did you go there and continue to play, or did you I, just I did for a year. I played for a year and then continued to have knee problems, and it just it got so painful at some point. I just, you know, so the last year I was there, I didn't play. Right, and that's got to be a pretty difficult transition coming from Toledo where you have a heavy focus on athletics and basketball and going to Cornell, which is an Ivy League school with a rigorous academic program. So what was that transition like for you, and how were you able to succeed? You know, it was it was really hard. Um, you know, Toledo's a great school, but but the academic rigors at Cornell were just a lot more. And and so I remember taking my first chemistry tra- test and just getting crushed, and calling my brother and he said, Hey, I told you this is you know you gotta you gotta really gonna work hard and gotta compete. So uh, it was the first time I had really been challenged academically, and I had to learn to take the work ethic I used for sports and apply it to to school. So it was a great lesson, and the basketball program was fantastic at helping me, you know, get a tutor, learning how to study, learning how to take notes better, um, and and it it was it was a culture shock the first couple exams I had to take, and and bigger than that it was you know I had never traveled much, and and so it's going from a small town in Ohio to a predominantly East Coast school was just eye opening, uh, but but I I think that that change really helped broaden my perspective and helped me kind of see a different side of of what you could do with your life and and really helped drive me to 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 want to grow our business what were the focus of your studies at toledo and did they change when you went to cornell no it was finance i i always loved money um i always loved the markets even as a kid um you know, I would go to the library and get books about learning how to understand companies and learning how to read the Wall Street Journal and would read the journal. I, I don't know what drove that fascination. It was with six kids and not a lot of money. I wonder if part of it might have been just money was a topic for our family because we didn't have much. And, and so money was something we talked about a lot. Um, and, and But at a very young age, I knew I wanted to do something in and around finance and the markets. And let's talk about leaving Cornell then at that point. So, you, you know, you, you focus on that finance and your first jobs with Merrill Lynch. What were you doing there? And- so it was, um, I had a really weird career path. So coming out of school, I had had a job offer from a major Wall Street firm and wanted to go to Wall Street and wanted to live in New York City. And so I'd accepted the job. And uh, unfortunately, my father disappeared and my little brother's 11 years younger. My oldest brother was in the midst of his residency to be a surgeon, so he couldn't come home and help, and my mom really struggled, so I had to turn the job down and come home. Uh, Luckily, I stumbled into a job with a guy who owned a business in Finley, uh, who was a Cornell graduate. He was a baseball player, so the athletic department kind of introduced us. So my first actual job was working for him in one of his small businesses, uh, which was was a great experience because he gave me way too much freedom and let me get involved in every aspect of the business, and, and I had no idea what I was doing. So it was, it was really a great learning experience, and he was incredibly patient. He then sold the business, so I was unemployed again and needed to stay in and around Mansfield, and there just weren't many job opportunities. So I took a sales job at Merrill Lynch, and I was a young broker trainee and cold called every night and bugged people during dinner to see if they had money and I could meet with them. So it was, it was a weird career path relative to kind of coming out of a school like Cornell. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, you know, I think that those, those jobs, right, you mentioned kind of bugging people at dinner, and, like, those are hard jobs. It's hard to get people to pick up that phone oh. at dinner time. But I think 
a lot of times that's where you learn the most. So did you think that you learned a lot of skills there that applied down the road or like in terms of selling skills? Oh, absolutely. Because when you're cold calling people and they are sitting at dinner or we used to cold call on Saturday mornings and you've got to figure out a way to create interest immediately because they, it's so quick to hang up. I mean, you know, now today, you don't get as many of those calls today because so many of us use our cell phone relative to a home phone. But, but you had to learn how to create interest. You had to have energy because you had to keep them engaged on the phone. And to learn to get somebody to like you over the phone enough to meet you and tell you something about their finances uh, was, was challenging. And, and we used to dial. Our goal was to talk to 60 people a day which is a lot. I mean, you got to make a lot of dials to get a hold of 60 people and talk to them. Um, and, and so not just the sales skills, but learning how to take no and, and get hung up on, get yelled at. It, it really built a thick skin that I think to succeed, you got to have. So when you finished your sales role, how long did you stay there and, and what age are you at at that point? So let's see, I started at Merrill Lynch when I was 24. And um, it, it really is you're in that sales role forever. You know, and it just eventually you build a client base so you're not selling as much. But uh, I stayed there for a year, met my wife, well then, girlfriend. She was uh, finishing up her teaching certification. She got a job at Upper Arlington teaching. We wanted to be in Columbus. And, and so uh, Merrill wouldn't let me come to Columbus, so I left, and that's how I ended up at Smith Barney at the time, and continued to cold call. And then I think, so I have a business partner, Kathy Corey, who we've been together for 21 years. So three years into it, I hired somebody to start cold calling for me because I figured out that, you know, if I could get more meetings, then I would grow faster. And my wife and I had a lot of things we wanted to do, and neither one of us came from money. And, and I had a bunch of debt coming out of school, so I needed to grow and, and, and grow as quickly as I could. So we hired somebody who still works with us today, um, and we hired. I hired Jeff right out of right out of college, and he spent the day cold calling. I spent the day cold calling, and then we'd get meetings, and I'd go to the meetings. Eventually, he'd go to the meeting too, and and so we kind of slowly scaled, you know, up by hiring people to do cold calling for us, do mailings for us, and then Kathy and I met when we were 27, and we had been together ever since, and and it was the same kind of thing. Kathy would do some meetings, and then I'd go with her to the second meeting to help close. And then eventually she would go to the second meeting to close, and I would only go to bigger meetings. And you kind of just slowly scaled up where we started taking anybody who had $100,000 or more. And then, you know, when we kind of got to a point where our client base was, was built and more stable, um, you know, we weren't taking anybody who had less than a million dollars. So it was it was kind of a fun six years of working a lot of long hours and, and getting our nose bloodied a lot on the phone. Yeah, and so what's, I mean, when you're going to someone with $100,000, $250,000, million in investable assets, what's your pitch to them for Griffin Financial? Because they've got people coming at them from every which way all the time trying to get them to invest money. So what, what about Griffin Financial stands out? Well, so let me, if I, if I can, I'll back up a little bit. We fell into a niche of working with business owners. And we were smart enough or maybe lucky enough to look at it and say, there's going to be a lot of business owners in the coming years who need to sell their company. And most business owners have the preponderance of their wealth in the business. So that time of, of sale and that time of transition is not one of just the financial windfall, but it's, it's a huge psychological shift to go from working every day 
And, and you know, we, we jokingly say that, you know, the business is kind of the third child of the family. And, and a lot of kids who are, are kids of business owners will tell you it's the most loved child in the family because, you know, you, you spend a lot of time, energy, it's a focal at dinner that you talk about how the business is doing, how the people are doing. And so we, we looked at it and said, geez, if we can really add value to that process and help them through that time, we're going to be, we're going to really do something not only neat for them, but it's a great way to grow for us. And it's something we enjoyed. And I knew something about business because I'd worked in a small business. And so we studied and learned and did interviews and talked to all kinds of people who advised business owners when they were going through a transition. And so we really focused for years on just finding business owners who were going to sell their company. And, and today, what Griffin does, we still do a lot of work with business owners. That's our primary market. But we've also taken that skill of helping people think about transition and helping key executives leave. So if you've got somebody who's a, you know, a C-suite executive leaving their job, getting ready to retire, you have a lot of the same issues that you're dealing with giving up a paycheck and how do you take this nest egg you've built and turn it into a cash flow mechanism? How do you think about what you're going to do next? What does retirement really look like? Uh, and for somebody who's worked 70 or 80 hours a week, uh, retirement's not easy. That's hard to transit. Everybody thinks it's this, man, it's amazing. You got all this free time and you have money. Yeah, but, but so much of who we are is tied up in our job and the purpose is tied up in what we do that when you lose that, it's difficult. So, so our real you know, niche today is helping people go through transitions. And you mentioned that value add that you're delivering to them, the people who are either exiting their business or business owners at the time. What was that value add? And then how do you help them with that transition? What does that look like to help them find a new identity in something else? So, so I think it's, you know, the, we, we jokingly say the financial part's pretty easy, right? You can, you can do that a lot easier than you can the personal side. And on the personal side, it, it's a lot of what we, what we do every day in our business. It's how do you set goals? What, you know, we jokingly call it the next mountain. What's the next mountain you're going to climb? And, and to really have fulfillment, you've got to figure out what is going to give you that purpose once the business is gone. And, and so it's helping them find that passion in that next mountain they're going to go climb. Uh, sometimes it's another business. Sometimes it's really being philanthropic and impacting a charity or their community. Uh, a lot of times it's, it's family involvement and making sure they're reconnecting with kids or grandkids who they haven't been as close to because they work so much. But it's really just talking about what their passion is and, and, and getting them past that first layer of, well, I'm going to travel. Okay, well, what we've seen is that's great for 18 months or two years, but then all of a sudden, you, you see that, that itch starts to come and you need something more than just travel. Um, and we had a, a great client who's a good friend. He goes, you know, there's only so many golf balls you can hit. There's only so many fish you can catch. And there's only so many times you can sit and drink a beer with your buddy. He goes, you just got to have more. And so I think on the personal side, it's helping them find that more. My dad had challenged you on the golf balls. <laughs> he's, a big, he's a big golfing guy, but... Yeah, no, that, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and, and do you have, like, a typical strategy for helping them find that, that little bit more in terms of, like, like digging any deeper and getting granular on that? Like, like if, I'm, if I'm retired and I'm trying to find something more, where are you pointing me to? What are you, what are you really leading me on that path? You know, it, it really is different for everybody. And what we talk to them about is, is, is the opportunity they have when they create that liquidity and using the liquidity and the money as a tool. 
And, and it's not the end all. Our goal isn't to just count how many dollars we made. Our goal is to take that and impact something. So we talk to them about what that something is. And so a lot of times it's questions like, you know, uh, Josh, if we're sitting here three years from today, looking back over the last three years, what would make you feel really great about those three years? Okay, well, what would my health look like? You know, what would my family relationships look like? What would my relationship with my spouse look like? What organizations do I want to really impact with, you know, my energy, my creativity? Because entrepreneurs, as you guys know from talking to them, um, they're amazing people. I mean, they are really creative, really smart. They can solve problems. So how do you take that skill set and now apply it to things that matter to you? And, and for everybody, it's something different that matters. And is your network that you've built up at this point kind of help you facilitate those relationships and those pathways, I'm assuming? I mean, it's probably become easier as the years have rolled on. Yeah, not, not only with outside organizations that they want to get involved in, but also connecting them with each other. Because a lot of times it helps to have another entrepreneur who sold his company and what was his journey, you know, what, what did he do, what, what didn't he do, uh, what, what does he wish he did, uh, what did he do that didn't work. And so connecting our clients a lot of times will help them too. So, you know, another question, it's kind of taken a step back, but you talked about progressing your path through $100,000 minimums, $250,000 minimums, a million dollars. As you're reaching those different thresholds, you're reaching different profiles of individuals who operate at different levels, you know, from people that it, uh, we've been fortunate to sit down with that have those different levels of wealth. They just, they're not as easy to sell to. So what I'm curious is when you were sitting down and approaching these people, how did you evolve as a person at 27, 28 years old or whatever point you were then? to be able to resonate with them and get them to say, yeah, I trust this younger individual to take my wealth and, and make me successful? Well, I think it was a couple things. It was, one, you know, the old adage, people don't care how much you know when they know how much you care. So I think that's the first thing is that Kathy and I both just always had an incredible interest in people. And, and so we love to sit and talk and figure out what makes them tick and, and really had an interest in what their goals were and, and, and trying to understand it. Um, and I don't, think, I don't think many of us have people who do that with us, right? And, and so you're right, at first, they've got kind of a little bit of, a, of a, a defense mechanism up, but over time, as you continue to ask and ask and ask, and they know that you're paying attention and they know you're listening and you remember things that they've told you, that trust begins to grow. And, and, and our belief is that, that entrepreneurs and business owners they love to have people they can trust and advisors around them who they can count on. And, and so if they know they can trust you and you build that trust by listening and by remembering and doing what you said, I mean, we used to have a, uh, we had a system where we would confirm appointments via phone call two days ahead. We would send a thank you letter. All of those little things where you actually do what you say you're going to do, build trust in ways that I think we, we discount. Um, and, and so I think that was, that was one. And then the second thing and, and what drove us to kind of leave the big firm environment and open our own was just an incredible passion to put clients first and make sure that we were always doing what was in their best interest and, and just had transparency. So they knew what they paid us. They knew what fees were. Um, they knew what they could expect from us. And, and we, that passion drove us to leave the big firms and open, and, and open Griffin because we just think that being that fiduciary and sitting beside the client and making sure that, that not only are we willing to say we put their interests first, but legally we put their interests first and, put, and, and to be willing to be sued if we don't, um, 
I, I think that all really do, goes a long way to them feeling comfortable and, and trusting to us. Yeah, there's a lot of things tied up in that fiduciary uh, title, especially you know legally. But uh, what I want to talk about is kind of like some of the bigger challenges for you in, in that march. So I know we've talked, you know, it's you know you've had like a march up, and there's you know cold calling obviously is tough, right? That's a challenge. But were there any other key moments or times where you thought, hey, maybe this isn't going to work, or you know, we really, really need to kick, kick this in gear or we're not going to have success? Uh, and how'd you overcome those? Well, you know, I, I think the, the, some of the biggest challenging times for us, is the first couple were kind of market driven. So we were growing our business during the tech bubble bust, which was really painful because you had a couple really bad years in the market. And, and I always tell young people in our industry, you have no idea how to manage money until you've lost people money and you've had to sit across the table from them and go through a review and explain to them what happened and why they were down and and you know I hate to tell you this but you know you lost a million dollars this year because the market was down now markets come back over time if you don't panic and you don't sell during those down times you don't realize your loss but but in that two-year window that was really hard to, to work with families who trusted you and, and to sit and have those conversations. And it was, as, you, as I look back, it was incredibly rewarding because we didn't lose clients. Clients trusted us, they stayed with us, and, and, it, and the markets did recover. And, and so it turned out to be a phenomenal period in our lives because we learned so much, but going through those periods was very difficult. And then the 2008 market crash was, I think, you know, just as painful for everybody. And, we were at a firm, Citigroup owned Smith Barney, and Citigroup was going to go under. And literally, if the government hadn't intervened, they would have been bankrupt. So that was an incredibly painful time. And, and I think that was when, you know, Kathy and I sat there and we said, we just, we just don't want to do this anymore. We don't want to be involved with a firm that could take those kinds of risks and, and, and expose us to, you know, embarrassment with our families who trust us because they overlevered their balance sheet. And so that's when we really started thinking about, you know, how do we exit? What do we do? And then I think the, the other really challenging period for us is once we decided to do it, we had to get the business ready and open and learn all of that after hours. And we had to do it kind of um, secretly because if Morgan Stanley had found out, they would have fired us. And so that was a really challenging period because all of us um, – you know, we've been very fortunate that several of our team members have been with us for, you know, in three or four cases, more than 15 years. We were on conference calls at 8 o'clock at night. We all had families. A couple of them had young kids. And, and you know, to go through that um, and all the stress of knowing that you couldn't have Morgan Stanley find out or you were in trouble, that, that, was, a, that was a challenging period. Now let's talk about the team today and, you know, what you guys have going on and what the goals for the future look like. Yeah, so, so there's 11 people in the firm, including myself. Um, we have uh, four financial advisors and, and a young guy who's working his way up to, to become a financial advisor who was a financial analyst for a couple years with us. Uh, our, our goals are pretty simple. We've got a presence in Cincinnati. Uh, we want to grow that presence. We want to continue to grow what we've got in Columbus. We manage about a billion two today in assets, and our goal over the next five years is to double that. Okay. And how has your role changed over time? So, I mean, you know, I know you mentioned early on, you know, you started going only to the bigger meetings. What does your role look like today and kind of what's your day-to-day -day look like? So I, I still am involved and will always be involved with, with clients because I, I think that, 
you know, as, as the owner and as the CEO of the business, the moment you give up that frontline experience, um, I think you lose touch with your business a little bit. You know, again, you've got to be willing to sit in front of those families and take accountability for what you've done and the investments that you've made, whether they went good or whether they, they didn't go as well. Um, and so I'll, I'll never give that up because I love our clients and, and, and again, we're fortunate. I mean, we work with some of the most creative, um, innovative souls that we have in, in the country. Uh, you know, one of our clients, um, you know, founded a, a major uh, television network uh, that, that uh, he grew tremendously and just retired recently. And, you know, to, to sit and listen to those stories and to, to be able to, to kind of pick their brains and learn, I, I'll never give that up. So it's less, so I, I do less and less of it today than I did. Um, and then the, the, a lot of time is spent on business development out with key relationships who can refer us new clients, a lot of accountants and law firms uh, who are instrumental in helping us find clients. And then the rest is spent with my team, uh, helping you know make investment decisions and helping my teammates grow and, and I think the biggest transition, and I had a great mentor who helped me kind of think about this, was going from the business was being driven by my personality and by Kathy's personality to realizing that we had to grow it through people and we had to have great people around us that could go out and carry the message and grow the firm to get where we want. And, and I, I think that, is, uh, that transition was, was, uh, was a challenging one. So I need to spend more and more time with our team and, and helping them develop and helping them grow for us to get where we want to get. And, and in terms of your team and growing that team, I mean, how many, so how many people do you have working there at Griffin today? So there's 11 including me. Okay. Okay. And then so as you continue to grow your assets and that sort of thing, how do you envision your team growing? Well, so we have a pretty good idea how many families an advisor can handle. Um, so today we have capacity to, to, to add families, but we are actively interviewing for the kind of next generation of talent because what we want them to do is, is to grow up alongside of a more experienced advisor for a number of years, learning how we do things, understanding the culture, understanding how we treat clients. And, and so we've got we've to look a couple years out to where our capacity needs to be as we grow. Uh, so we'll certainly be adding more advisors. Um, and and we're, again, we are, being a small business and, and having so much personal interaction with our clients like we do, culture is just critical. I mean, we've gotta have people who, ha who have the same values that, that we believe in for it to be successful. So we're very selective who we hire. And then, you know, we'll continue to add a couple service roles as well as we bring in more families. Well, Joel, I think that's probably a good place to pivot towards one of our last questions of the show, uh, which is centered around a theme of Conquering Columbus, uh, Live Uncomfortably. I don't know if you've ever heard it before, but uh, without telling you too much about why Josh and I chose Live Uncomfortably for Conquering Columbus, what do you think of when you hear the phrase, and, and how does it apply to your life? So to me, it would mean kind of pushing yourself and, and pushing your boundaries. Um, and and I, we, have a, we have a phrase in our family that, that we joke with our kids about, and that's just be better today than we were yesterday. Just better today than yesterday. And if every day, you know, we're just a little bit better today than we were yesterday, and even my little guy who's 10, he, he can say 365% better by the end of the year. And, and, and nobody can do that. We know we can't actually get 1% better every day, but I think it's something to strive for. Whether it's working on your health, whether it's working on your parenting, whether it's working on your business, 
But if you just approach every day with, I just want to be better today than I was yesterday, it's amazing how much you can accomplish over time. It's compounding interest for getting yep. better. Yep. There's I a like it. <laughs> there's a great book that, that, that I, I have had my daughters read who are uh, 18 and 15, and it's called The Compound Effect. And that's the entire thing is just small incremental changes every day don't seem like much in the moment, but over time, the compounding effect of them can be astronomical. That's absolutely true, Joel. I think that's a really good answer. Uh, we really appreciate you joining us on the Yeah, thank you. Today. And uh, Conquerors, thanks a lot for listening. That's Joel Guth of Griffin Financial. We hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. If you did, uh, like the episode, share us on Facebook, and we will talk to you guys next week. Hey, Conquerors, that's it for the episode today. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. If you did, make sure to leave a like, share us on Facebook with your friends. We really appreciate all your support. And every time you share our podcast or leave a review on iTunes, it really does help us out. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here. And that's going to start with FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And our next sponsor is Share. For the rides that you take the most, ride with Share. Share is a new transportation company now driving Columbus. Schedule your ride and Share picks you up at your door with professional drivers and a growing fleet of connected vehicles. Share is now hiring with entry-level management positions available. You can learn more about careers with Share at drivewithshare.com. I'd also like to give a shout-out to Molly Ross. Molly Ross is an independent designer who focuses on branding and web design. She wants to connect with you, hear your story, and partner to create something beautiful that will help your business be more successful. If you'd like to check out some of Molly's work or connect with her, you can go to mollyross.com. Finally, if you've ever wondered what it takes to start your own podcast, we're here to help. We're putting together a podcast startup package with our recommendations and some of the key lessons we learned over the past two years of podcasting. You can sign up by heading over to our website, conqueringcolumbus.com. And while you're there, don't forget to give us a like on Facebook and be sure to subscribe and share Conquering Columbus wherever you get your podcasts. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. 
This is Conquering Columbus.